are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Listeners, be aware that this episode contains adult language. As always, listener discretion is advised. As we reach the end of October, you can sense the holidays coming. First Halloween, then Thanksgiving, and immediately after that is the messy shopping frenzy that paves the way to Christmas. Then the year glides to an end, with the long-awaited New Year's Eve party or event to say farewell to the old and welcome a new year with all of its possibilities. Of course, I'm simplifying things. The holidays can be messy, stressful. We've all been there, making our way through a tense or awkward holiday meal or family gathering. Christmas is often equated with a family dinner and a glittering holiday tree laden with gifts from Santa. But with those gifts come expectations, and sometimes disappointment. This case starts with someone not getting what they wanted for Christmas someone not meeting their expectations. But before we arrive at the holidays, we need to talk about Bernice Gray and how a stressful Christmas led to her disappearance. Bernice Gray is the only daughter of parents Jean and Tom Gray. She has a brother, Earl, and in 1989, she became the mother of a daughter who we will call Lindsay. Lindsay was fathered by Bernice's boyfriend, Robert Pan. Standing five foot ten inches tall and weighing about a hundred and forty pounds, Bernice has long brown hair and big green eyes. She's a striking young woman, tall and smiling, her hair long and curly. She and her boyfriend, Robert, have been together almost four years. When she became pregnant with their daughter, the two moved in together, sharing Penn's canal front home on Alexander Street in St. Clair Shores. Once she was living with him, Pan suggested that they get married, that they make things official. But Bernice wasn't ready for marriage, not to him and not at that time. She had concerns, one of them being that he was about ten years older than she was. Once Lindsay arrived, the pair had their ups and downs. And one of Bernice's friends said that she'd never seen Robert strike Bernice, but she described his temper the anger that she had witnessed from Robert as, quote, explosive. As the Christmas of 1991 approached, Bernice knew she couldn't stay with Robert. His temper, his mood swings, his jealousy. It was all too much for her. She worried about herself. She worried about their tiny daughter. Bernice thought she could make a go of things, be a family with him, but it wasn't working out. So she packed her belongings and took Lindsay home to stay with her mother. Jean Grey was happy to have her daughter and granddaughter staying with her. Come with me to a sunny Christmas day in 1991, when Bernice Grey said no to a marriage proposal, a decision she would pay for with her life. Christmas Day 1991 was unseasonably warm and sunny, with few clouds and temperatures near 40 degrees not the white Christmas one may have wished for or expected here in Michigan. When Bernice woke up Christmas morning, it wasn't with a sense of joy or childlike wonder, but with feelings of anxiety and stress, because on Christmas Eve, she had turned down yet another marriage proposal from Robert Pan, her longtime boyfriend, the father of her young daughter. 
While their relationship was over, she still had to see him and spend time with him as they had plans to go to her father's house on Christmas morning with the baby. Despite her mood, she dressed and put on a smile. Her daughter, Lindsay, was excited for the holiday and what presents Santa may have brought. Bernice was less excited to see Robert again, but they had plans to celebrate the holiday together. Robert drove Bernice, Lindsay, and Bernice's brother, Earl, to her father's house for breakfast. Bernice's parents, Jean and Tom, had divorced back in 1984. During breakfast, Robert Pan confided in Tom Gray's lady friend that he had proposed to Bernice on Christmas Eve, but she'd turned him down. Tom Gray's friend would later tell police that Pan didn't seem angry or upset, and he presented Bernice's refusal of the ring in a matter-of-fact tone. Bernice's brother, Earl, who described Pan as something of a friend, someone that he'd done work for, as well as someone he'd gone hunting and fishing with, Earl said that his sister and Pan were not getting along on Christmas Day. They weren't arguing, but they clearly were not happy with each other. Things are tense between Robert and Bernice, but they're putting on a good show for their little girl. After breakfast with Bernice's dad, it's back to her mother's house for Christmas dinner, and Pan sticks around as long as possible. Perhaps he's trying to persuade Bernice to change her mind and accept the ring and his proposal. Earl will later tell police that it was nearly two o'clock in the morning when he saw Robert Pan leave the Gray family home on December 26, 1991. When Pan leaves the house, Bernice Gray has less than five hours left to live. The home that Bernice shared with Robert and her mother's home are both located in the city of St. Clair Shores. St. Clair Shores is a suburb of Detroit. It's located 13 miles north of downtown, and the city is known for its lakefront location and the Nautical Mile, a lakefront stretch of Jefferson Avenue between 9 and 10 mile roads. This section of Jefferson houses the Jefferson Beach Marina and several nautical-themed shops, bars, and restaurants. Another distinctive feature of St. Clair Shores is that the city is home to more than 14 miles of canals leading out to Lake St. Clair. The house that Bernice Gray shared with Robert Pan was on one of those canal-front streets, and there was a boat docked behind their home. Remember the canal-front location of Pan's house, as this will come up again later. In 1991, Christmas fell on a Wednesday, which meant that on Boxing Day, Thursday, December 26th, Bernice was back to work. Despite being up until the small hours talking with Robert Pan, remember her brother Earl saw Pan leave the house just before 2 a.m. on the 26th, Bernice is up for work at 5.30 in the morning. She is dressed and ready to go, and gets her little girl, Lindsay, dressed as well. Bernice will drop Lindsay off with her daycare provider before heading for work in Southfield. With Lindsay settled in at daycare, Bernice goes back to her car, a blue four-door 1989 Pontiac 6000, and she heads for the freeway. To get from St. Clair Shores to Southfield, she'll pick up Interstate 696, and with light traffic, it'll easily make it to the office by her start time of 7 a.m., With the stress of the holiday behind her, Bernice has two things on her mind. One, a lunch date with her girlfriend. She would be able to talk with her about the situation with Robert. Bernice wanted to end the relationship, and he just wasn't accepting her decision. He'd proposed marriage, and she'd turned him down flat. 
Undaunted, he'd asked her to spend New Year's Eve with him. They'd have a date. Robert was trying to keep the relationship alive, and Bernice didn't know how to turn him down for the date, especially since she didn't have other plans for New Year's Eve. But she didn't want to see him anymore. Bernice was done. She was done with the relationship, and she was done with Robert Pan. Sure, they had a child together, but Bernice was ready to move on. Late on Christmas night, in a phone call with her friend, the same friend she had lunch plans with on the 26th, Bernice said she was going to figure a way out of the date with Robert. She had no intention of spending New Year's Eve with him. 7 a.m. arrives and Bernice is not at work. Her boss, Kathy, notes that she's not there yet. But Bernice does have a young child, and it's the day after the holiday, so Kathy decides to give her some time. When Bernice isn't in by 8 o'clock, a call is placed to Bernice's home number. Kathy still has the Alexander Street number, the home Bernice shared with Robert. That's the number she has on file, but there's no answer at the house. So Kathy leaves a message on the answering machine at approximately 8.35 a.m., Just after 8.45 a.m., Robert Pan returns Kathy's call to tell her that Bernice spent the night at her mother's, and Bernice was up late, so maybe she's just moving slowly this morning. Kathy then calls Jean Gray's home, and the call is answered by Sandy Ulmer. Sandy Ulmer is engaged to Jean Gray. He is the one who answers the phone when Kathy's call comes in looking for Bernice. Sandy is concerned because he heard Bernice and Lindsay leave the house on time that morning. There is no reason for her not to be at work. When Almer contacts Jean Grey to advise her that Bernice didn't make it to work, Jean is worried and places a call to Lindsay's daycare. They confirm that Bernice dropped Lindsay off at 6.30 that morning, and everything seemed fine with her when she dropped off her daughter. Jean is worried, and the St. Clair Shores police are notified that Bernice Gray is missing. It's Jean Gray who goes to the station to file the report. Bernice didn't make it into work, she missed her lunch date, and she doesn't return to the daycare to pick up Lindsay. Jean takes the baby back to her house and waits, hoping that Bernice will call or make an appearance. Jean calls Robert Pan, asking if he has seen Bernice, and he tells her that he has not. But when he learns that she's missing... Pan does not ask after his young daughter. This is 1991. There are no cell phones. There are no texts or emails. Social media doesn't exist. Word spreads the old-fashioned way. Phone calls and conversations. Knocking on doors. St. Clair Shores police file her missing persons report, and a description of Bernice, along with her car, the Blue Pontiac, is sent out. When police contact Robert Pan, he tells them he spent the morning of December 26th at Lakeside Mall, a large indoor shopping center in Macomb County. His reason for visiting the mall? He's headed to the jewelry store to return the ring he'd offered to Bernice Gray on Christmas Eve. Listeners, Bernice had not yet canceled her New Year's Eve plans with Robert Pan, not yet. Which meant, for him, there still should have been hope for an engagement— Unless, of course, Pan knew that he wouldn't be seeing Bernice again. After his errands at the mall are complete, he goes to work, traveling with an employee to work at a client's home building a wall in their basement. While there is no sign of foul play in the disappearance of Bernice Gray, St. Clair Shores police are not taking any chances. 
They visit the home of the client, asking to view the construction area and confirming Pan's report of their being worked on that day. While Bernice is missing, her young daughter, the almost two-year-old Lindsay, is cared for by her grandmother, Jean Gray. The weekend passes with no news of Bernice. Her family waits and hopes for an answer, for good news, for something better to tell the little girl who desperately wants her mother. On Monday, December 30th, Bernice's car, the Blue Pontiac, is found on East Lawn Street and Detroit's east side, about 10 miles south of the home Bernice shared with Robert Pan. There are several boxes in the back seat of the vehicle, and the keys are dangling from the ignition. Police hope that her car will give them clues as to the whereabouts of the missing mother. The Pontiac is filled with evidence, but it's not what anyone hoped to find. The interior of the car is bloodstained. There is a twenty-five caliber shell casing on the front seat. They check the trunk, but there's nothing of note. There is no sign of Bernice Gray. The car is towed to the police station for processing. Law enforcement knows this doesn't look good. Blood evidence and a shell casing in her recently recovered vehicle have them thinking that this is foul play, not a mother who ran off. Police once again check on Robert Pan, and they learn that he owns rental properties in the neighborhood near where Bernice's car was recovered. At the request of St. Clair Shores investigators, Pan comes in for questioning. He reiterates that he doesn't know what happened to Bernice, that he too is worried about her, and he is not involved in her disappearance. While Jean Grey is praying for good news in the disappearance of her daughter and keeping track of baby Lindsay, the community is rallying around the Gray family. $14,000 is raised as a reward, and the family of Robert Pan contributes $3,000 to the cause. On January 2, 1992, braving the frigid weather, divers from the Macomb County Sheriff's Department take to the canal behind Pan's house in St. Clair Shores. While divers seek signs of Bernice Gray, Officers are searching inside the house for evidence that could link him to her disappearance and possible murder. There is no sign of Bernice in the house, Robert's boat, or in the canal. Macomb County law enforcement reaches out to renowned expert Werner Spitz, asking that he take a look at Gray's Pontiac and give his thoughts. When Spitz looks the vehicle over, it is his professional opinion that, per the blood evidence, Gray was shot while seated behind the wheel of the car then pushed into the passenger seat, and the car was driven by someone else, most likely the shooter. Knowing that Robert Pan is well over six feet tall, I'd like to know the position of the driver's seat when the car was recovered. Law enforcement collects blood samples from Tom and Jean Gray so that they can verify the blood in the vehicle belongs to their daughter, Bernice. Tests will take weeks to complete. This is 1992 technology they're working with. And in March, the lab confirms that the blood in the car belonged to Bernice Gray. Her family's hope that she will return to them, safe and whole, have faded. It's a grim realization. Police are re-interviewing anyone who had contact with Bernice between Christmas Eve and the morning of December 26th. In talking with her family and friends, police learn that Bernice recently broke things off with Robert Pan, and that despite her moving out and taking the baby with her, he'd proposed to her on Christmas Eve. Bernice turned him down. She did not want to marry him. As far as she was concerned, 
their relationship was over. Bernice's friends thought she may have met someone new and possibly went on a date with this new guy the week or two before she disappeared. Police ask Pan again about his alibi. He left home around 9 a.m. He went to Lakeside Mall to the jewelry store so he could return the ring he'd proposed with. Then he went to work with one of his employees. When police talked to Pan's employee, they learned that this job they did was to put a wall in someone's basement. Police pay a visit to the client's home and ask to see the basement where the work was done. They need to be sure that the body of Bernice Gray, or evidence related to her murder, is not concealed there. Listeners, can you imagine being the homeowner, having the police show up to inspect someone's work and make sure your house wasn't used to hide a body or evidence of a crime? As 1992 progresses, there's no sign of Bernice, no word from her. Lindsay, her beloved daughter, misses her mother fiercely, and Jean tries to comfort and soothe the little girl. Jean and Lindsay are together in their love and longing for Bernice. Even though months have passed since her disappearance, the community is aware of Bernice, and they are suspicious of Robert Pan. In mid-January, a call comes in that there is what looks like a grave on one of Pan's properties in Warren. The area is searched, but no remains are found. In early February, one of Pan's neighbors calls police to report that Pan rushed across the street one morning to catch the garbage truck, leaving just one bag of trash in front of his neighbor's house for pickup, rather than setting it at the curb in front of his own home. The neighbor is concerned that he's trying to get rid of evidence. In late February, a woman in New Baltimore, a community in northern Macomb County, calls police to report finding a torn-up address book in the trash outside of her business. The address book is notable because it contains Bernice Gray's name and phone number. In May of 92, Bernice should be celebrating her birthday, but she's still missing, and the community is still focused on her absence. Pan's neighbors are still keeping an eye on him. A call comes in to St. Clair Shores Police advising them that Pan and his mother are unloading a truckload of bricks into the home. The neighbor is very direct with police and says, quote, they could be using the bricks to hide a body. In the summer of 1992, Pan begins a relationship with a married woman, Linda Joswiak. The woman's husband, Mark, comes across his wife drinking with Robert Pan at a bar in Roseville. While he's keeping an eye on them, he sees them kissing. Joswiak confronts his wife, and the two of them leave together. They go home and talk about their marriage and their relationship, and he thinks it's settled that his wife will not see Robert Pan anymore. A couple of weeks later, Mark stops home mid-afternoon to find his wife's vehicle at the house, but the house is locked up and quiet. When he enters the home, he sees a pair of men's shoes on the floor in the living room, and those shoes don't belong to him. He calls out his wife's name, but there's no response. He goes upstairs to the bedroom and finds her in bed. She's half-dressed and tells him that she was sleeping, so she didn't hear him come in. At this point, he notices that there's a man's watch on the nightstand, and again, just like the shoes in the living room, this is not his watch. Convinced that Linda is deceiving him, he calls out for Bob to show himself, and there's no response. Mark is angry and storms down the stairs and out the back door to the deck. Linda, upset with her husband, follows him outside where the two have a verbal argument. 
They're yelling at each other, raised voices. There may have been some pushing as well. And just then, the back door of the house is flung open and Robert Pan appears. He's wielding a crowbar and he bellows, I'm going to fucking kill you. Pan strikes Joswiak several times in the head, shoulders, and back before Joswiak gets hold of the weapon. At this point, a neighbor intervenes, taking the crowbar away and ending the fight. Joswiak files assault charges against Robert Pan and then heads to the hospital to be checked for a concussion and so that a doctor can piece together his torn ear. After the assault, St. Clair Shores police interview Mark Joswiak. They ask him if it was Robert Pan who assaulted him, and he says that he's certain it was. When they ask him how he knows this, Joswiak says that Pan was on television, on the news, about his missing girlfriend. When he saw the news piece, he turned to his wife and said, Hey, is that the guy you know? And his wife said, Just turn off the television. But Mark responded, The police said he's a suspect in the disappearance. And Mark's wife replied, The police don't know what they're talking about. Pan's assault on Mark Joswiak happened just weeks after police completed searches of Pan's property in Warren looking for the remains of Bernice Gray. Law enforcement searched property off of Hoover Road and another property off of Bunnert Road, but no sign of Gray was discovered. Another of Pan's properties, this one at Nine Mile and Grosbeck, was searched without success. While Robert Pan is carrying on an affair with married Linda Joswiak, he's also trying to regain custody of his daughter, Lindsay. Since Bernice disappeared, Lindsay has lived with Jean Gray, and Gray is the primary caregiver of the toddler. When Pan files for custody, Gray is going to fight him, and she gets creative. She calls upon the Chippewa Indian tribe for support of her adoption of Lindsay. Macomb County Circuit Court Judge Frederick Bulkwill hears the custody case between Robert Pan, who was on bond because of the assault charges pending in Detroit, and Jean Grey. And Bulkwill agrees with Jean Grey because she, and therefore Bernice and intern Lindsay, are part of the Chippewa tribe. It is a tribal court that should decide who gets custody of the girl. At the hearing, a tribal registrar testifies that Bernice's great-great-grandfather, was 100% Chippewa Indian, and therefore Bernice and her daughter are considered members of the Chippewa tribe. After the hearing, one of the tribal judges states publicly that the tribe, quote, looks favorably on grandparent adoptions. Before 1992 is over, Jean Grey is awarded full custody of young Lindsay. Sadly, when the year ends, Bernice's case which provided no shortage of evidence and several promising leads. The case just isn't going anywhere. It's not forgotten, but unless they can find her body or additional evidence of Pan's involvement, there won't be an arrest. And listeners, if you're wondering what happened in the assault case filed by Mark Joswiak, I'm assuming that Pan received probation. I don't see any record of him being sent to jail for it. 1993, New Year, and new legal trouble for Robert Pan. He hasn't assaulted anyone, but he is charged with defrauding an insurance company. This case has nothing to do with the disappearance of Bernice Gray, but Pan is facing charges of fraud, false pretenses, and perjury. Again, I'm not sure he received any jail time for this. Just 10 days after the charges are filed against him, 
a specialized recovery group arrives in Michigan to search for Bernice Gray. Colorado-based NecroSearch will re-examine areas previously searched by law enforcement. They're going to see if anything was missed or if any sign of the missing woman can be located. The search is unsuccessful, and as 1994 begins, Bernice Gray is still missing. There is no mention of Gray's case in the press until the fall of 1994, when the sweet, smiling face of Bernice Gray is again in the newspaper. She's featured alongside other missing women from Michigan, Paige Renkowski and Jan Pattinson. As an aside, all three of these women are still missing, even now, almost 30 years later. And I have spoken about Paige's case on the podcast previously. In this 1994 news story, Jean Gray, now Jean Ulmer, is pictured alongside her husband, Sandy, and her former husband, Bernice's father, Tom Gray. The three are working together to find Bernice and raise their much-loved grandchild. In January of 1995, Bernice Gray is declared legally dead. The ruling is made by a judge in Macomb County Probate Court, and while Bernice being declared dead means that her daughter, Lindsay, is eligible for benefits, it's a very emotional time for her family. Jean Ulmer tells the press that they are thinking of buying a grave for Bernice, that while they don't have her remains, a stone would mark her place in the world, and perhaps a memorial service could be held to celebrate her life and memory. In the fall of 1995, Robert Pan, who cannot seem to stay out of trouble, makes the news again. His house, the canal front home on Alexander that he once shared with Bernice, is sighted because his boat is sinking in the canal. It's a nuisance and a hazard because engine oil and fuel are leaking into the water. The problem is, the boat doesn't technically belong to Pan, not anymore. You see, Back in 1990, Robert Pan was involved in a car accident in Woodhaven, Michigan. And the day after the accident, he transferred the boat's title from his name to Bernice's name. So the boat technically belongs to Bernice Gray. Pan was hoping to protect this asset if there was a lawsuit stemming from the accident. With Bernice dead, she cannot be the owner of the boat. After several attempts to reach Pan, a notice is posted at the house at one point in the sinking boat saga, police approach Robert Pan's mother. The Coast Guard says the boat is leaking oil and fuel, and there has to be a cleanup. Police are recording their interaction with Robert's mother, and Mrs. Pan stated, quote, That boat was his pride and joy. Then he kills her, and he don't transfer the fucking thing into his own name. Not only was this utterance witnessed by a St. Clair Shores police officer— and a member of the Detroit Marine Safety Office, it was caught on tape and entered into evidence. Yes, listeners, you heard that correctly. Robert Pan's mother made this statement to police that Robert killed Bernice, and the statement was recorded. Sadly, there isn't enough to arrest Pan for the murder of Bernice Gray. Not yet, anyway. St. Clair Shores police are keeping an eye on Pan, waiting for him to do something or say something that will give them a break in the gray disappearance. Sometime between 1992 and 1996, Robert Pan did get married. His wife, Maureen Pan, will be the next victim of his anger. In April of 1995, 
Pan hides in the back of her car and then pops out of the back seat while she's driving and starts beating her. There's no bond this time. There's no probation. Pan is held in jail for months awaiting trial on charges. His wife, Maureen, well, she just wants all of this to go away. She did not want law enforcement to prosecute him for the attack on her. Per Maureen's initial statements, the attack happened as follows. Maureen got behind the wheel of her car and began driving. Her husband made his presence known in the backseat of the vehicle by grabbing her neck and yelling at her. Then he started to punch her. She pulled the car to the side of the road, trying to avoid an accident, while he is striking her repeatedly, telling her, I'm going to kill you. You're going to die. When a police officer approaches the vehicle, Pan drives away at a high rate of speed. He is eventually captured and taken into custody. At a court hearing for the charges, Pan and his attorney seek a change of venue, claiming that Pan can't get a fair shake in Macomb County. A judge denies his request. When the trial begins and Maureen Pan is called to testify, she frequently responds to questions about the incident with, I can't remember, or I exaggerated. Her hopes of sparing Robert Pan from serious jail time are dashed. In January of 1997, Pan is sentenced to six years in prison for felonious driving and aggravated assault with great bodily harm. He will have to serve at least three or four years in prison. When the verdict comes down, the Detroit newspapers run a story, and they interview St. Clair Shores police detective Tom Jenny about the case. He's worked her disappearance for years and wants nothing more than to close this one out. With Pan in prison, police and the prosecutor have more time to assemble a case against him for the murder of Bernice Gray on December 26th of 1991. In 2000, after working closely with law enforcement and the Gray family, Macomb County Prosecutor Stephen Kaplan files charges against Pan and the death of Bernice Gray. A trial is set for January 2001. It's been nearly a decade since Bernice vanished, but with the attack on Maureen Pan, also while she was behind the wheel of a car, it demonstrates that Pan has a pattern of attacking women in vehicles. The attack on Mark Joswiak years earlier demonstrates his propensity for violence and his temper. The report completed in 1992 by Dr. Werner Spitz shows the blood in Bernice's Pontiac belonged to her, and the trajectory and amount of blood make it highly unlikely that she survived the gunshot which led to the blood spray. The city of Mount Clemens is the county seat of Macomb County. Settled in the first half of the 19th century, Mount Clemens was best known for its mineral baths. The bathhouses drew tourists to the area, including such notables as Babe Ruth, Clark Gable, Mae West, and publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst. The baths were rumored to have healing properties, and up until the 1970s, people traveled to Mount Clemens to experience a restorative soak. It's in this historic city that Robert Pan will be tried for the murder of Bernice Gray. On Friday, January 5th, 2001, Macomb County Prosecutor Stephen Kaplan tells a jury that he will prove to them that Robert Pan is responsible for the murder and disappearance of Bernice Gray in 1991. Pan's attorney, Dennis Johnston, counters that since Bernice went missing, they have only focused on Robert Pan, an innocent man, and there is no physical evidence linking Pan to the case. 
Trying Robert Pan for the murder of Bernice Gray without recovering her remains is a big gamble. Macomb County hasn't seen a case like this before, and the press is watching closely. They are also aware that in less than three months, March of 2001, Robert Pan is up for parole. If they can't make this case, he will likely be a free man. Gray's family believes in Stephen Kaplan. They trust that he can present this case in a way that will let the jury see what became of their beloved Bernice. Kaplan begins to assemble his case, starting with Pan's whereabouts on December 26, 1991, the day that Bernice Gray disappeared. Pan was angry with Bernice for leaving him, angry with her for rejecting his marriage proposal, for taking away his daughter. Pan was alone at his home on Alexander Street in St. Clair Shores that morning. The first contact he has with anyone is a phone call he placed to his employee around 7.30 that morning, asking if the employee can work that day. Then, Pan missed a phone call from Bernice's supervisor at 8.34 a.m., returning her call at 8.47. Receipts from the jewelry store at Lakeside Mall show him entering to return the ring at 9.37 a.m. and leaving the store around 9.45 when Bernice's family came to his home at 10 a.m. to get Lindsay's car seat, Pan is at the house with his employee. The two men head to the job, which finished around 2 p.m., and Pan dropped the employee off at his home. No one will see or speak to Robert Pan between 3 p.m. and a phone call with his mother in Florida at 9.30 p.m. that evening. When asked to help distribute flyers for Bernice the night of the 26th, he responds that he's tired from work. He was digging all day. This does not jibe with what he was doing at work, which was putting up a wall in a client's basement. On December 30th, Pan arrives at the St. Clair Shores Police Station on his own, and during questioning from police, he described his day, waking at 7, calling his employee and going to the mall, installing a wall at a client's house, then heading home for a nap. He'd been with Bernice until 2 a.m. on the 26th and drank quite a bit on Christmas Day so he was tired. Bernice's bloodstained car is recovered in Detroit mid-afternoon on December 30th, and by 4 p.m., Pan's attorney calls the department, telling them if they have any questions for Mr. Pan, the questions go through the attorney's office. With this information, plus the recorded spontaneous outburst from Pan's mother, among other evidence, Prosecutor Kaplan feels he has what he needs to prosecute Pan for the murder of Bernice Gray. On January 25th, the case goes to the jury. They've heard Kaplan's case, the circumstantial evidence piled around Pan, the knowledge that Pan had several opportunities to get rid of Bernice's body, both using his boat or at one of the many properties he owns around the Detroit area. Pan also has access to and knowledge of using large digging machines, like bulldozers, tractors, and graders. For the defense, Johnston hammers the point that it's all circumstantial. There is no evidence that he did anything to Bernice. No body, no crime. The jury deliberated for two and a half days before returning a guilty verdict. They were apparently swayed by the fact that on the morning of December 26th, when Jean Grey came to Pan's home to get the car seat so she could pick up Lindsay because Bernice was missing, Pan didn't react. He didn't offer to help nor did he seem concerned about Bernice or his young child. He would wait days to speak to police about his contact with Bernice before her disappearance, and when her car is found, just a few blocks from one of his rental properties in Detroit, 
he immediately retains a lawyer and ceases cooperation with police. Because Pan was found guilty of first-degree murder, and in Michigan, a first-degree murder charge comes with a mandatory sentence of life in prison, we may never know what happened to Bernice Gray that December morning. Robert Pan may never be compelled to reveal where her body is hidden. In addition to life in prison, Pan is ordered to pay the Gray family more than $100,000 in restitution. So if he wins a lottery or inherits any money, it will go to Bernice's family. If he sells one of his many properties, like the rental homes in Detroit or the canal front house on Alexander and St. Clair Shores, the Gray family will receive the proceeds. At the time of this writing, Robert Pan is 60 years old and resides at the Muskegon Correctional Facility in West Michigan. If you have information as to what became of Bernice Gray, please contact the St. Clair Shores Police Department. In a tragic addendum to the disappearance and death of Bernice Gray, her cousin, Garnett Lennox, was murdered in Detroit in 2007. The case of Lennox, a father of two and beloved brother and son, remains open and unsolved. Already Gone is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. You can check us out on Twitter or join the Already Gone podcast discussion group on Facebook. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for cases to cover, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at alreadygonepod. I have recently resurrected our Instagram. That's N-I-N-A-I-N-N-S-T-E-D. And apparently I have a thing for police dogs, because if you look at my Instagram, there's lots of pictures of police dogs. If you are enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Your reviews help other listeners find the show and the cases discussed here. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Mm-hmm.